Good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and it's uh, great to see uh, each one of you here this morning. Again, a special welcome to you if you are with us this morning for the first time for you, or thanks so much uh, for joining us. Um, I know that can often be a difficult thing to step into a new church for the first time, so thanks uh, for being here. I hope that you feel warmly welcomed here with us. Um, before we look at this passage in, in more detail and spend the next uh, little bit taking some time looking at that, um, I want to just pause and pray and ask uh, for God's help to understand it. We need God's Spirit to understand uh, His Word, and so I just want to pause and, and pray and ask for that even uh, now as we begin. So, Father in Heaven, we are so thankful, as always, that You give us um, not only the gift of Your Word, but You've given us supremely the gift of Your Son, uh, who has then sent the Spirit who indwells us and makes um, the printed Word come alive. And point us to the living word of Jesus. And so I pray that this morning as we study this text in Galatians, um, that all of that uh, mysterious dynamic would be taking place. Um, that the spirit that dwells within us would be pointing us um, to the living Christ. And that we uh, would worship him uh, even as we study this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm. Well, we all want to be free. Uh, I think that, you know, it's probably a pretty good assumption that we all want to be free. I mean, we are uh, Americans, after all. After all, we live in the land of the free, the home of the brave. Um, so the fact that we want to be free uh, isn't uh, something that's that hard to, to parse out. But what is true freedom? That's the question that's a little bit more difficult to answer. What does it really mean uh, to be free? How do we define it? Well, in our Western cultural context, we tend to define freedom uh, as, as the ability to have freedom of personal expression um, and also autonomy. So personal expression and individual autonomy that we can kind of say and do what it is that we want uh, and that we don't have to be responsible uh, to others. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, I think he does a great job of summarizing what a wide range of, of scholars and social commentators have observed about our culture. Uh, Tim writes that in the West, individual happiness and autonomy must come before anything else. He says people's identities constantly shapeshift as they move through life's episodes. They always stand ready to change direction and abandon commitments and loyalties without qualms to pursue on a personal cost-benefit analysis the best opportunity available to them. Um, so that's a little bit of the, kind of the technical statement, but the Bodines, um, the great rapper from the 90s, also put it this way uh, in their hit song, um, Closer to Free, also the uh, theme song of Party of Five. Uh, they say, everybody wants to live like they want to live. Everybody wants to love like they want to love. Everybody wants to be closer to free, right? Now, some of you are thinking, Party of Five, wow, that really takes me back. Um, others of you are wondering... What in the world is Party of Five? I assure you the latter uh, group of you is much better off. Um, Party of Five was a terrible television show on Fox, I think, I don't know. Um, but that was the theme song to it. And, and freedom for us, um, in this kind of cultural context, tends to mean being free from the demands and obligations of others. It means being able to do what we want, when we want, right? Freedom is that day when, when your family is out of town and you can just do whatever you want. You can watch movies all day, you can do whatever you want. It's not having any obligations. That's why it makes sense to us, I think, in our culture, why we so um, elevate college 
as the best time in your life, right? How many people say that college is just the best time in your life? Well, if you have this idea that freedom really is a kind of personal expression and, and autonomy, college is probably the best time in your life because you're no longer at home with mom and dad. You have a lot of uh, freedom. Um, the student loans are paying the bills, so you don't have to work. Uh, you can, no one there knows you from high school, so you can kind of construct your identity however you want. Um, but here's the thing, that we are actually really bad at being free. Um, that is when we understand freedom as autonomy and personal expression. And, and why is that? Because the more ardently we pursue autonomy and personal expression, uh, two things happen. Uh, first, we become increasingly isolated because other people and, and real reciprocal relationships actually represent a threat to our freedom. So we become increasingly isolated. Because real relationships actually always mean a loss of freedom. I mean, even at the most basic level, right? If I commit to have lunch to you, I, I've given up a little bit of freedom, even just by putting that appointment on my calendar and, and giving an hour of time. So real relationships always mean a certain loss of autonomy if we talk about freedom in that way. But secondly, we are also bad at being free because we, when we pursue autonomy and personal expression, we become increasingly enslaved to our desires and our impulses. Um, freedom defined this way is always rooted in deep selfishness, and we actually become further enslaved to ourselves. And here's what I don't want us to miss this morning, and that is that, that selfish people will never be free. The selfish will never be free. So the, the question for us is, how does the Bible define freedom? And one thing that we quickly discover as we look through the testimony of the scriptures is that in the Bible, freedom is never about merely being autonomous. I love how uh, John Stott, who was a, a pastor and a theologian in, in London, uh, put it, he preached for many years in, in London. He says, true freedom is not freedom from all responsibility to God and others in order to live for myself, but the exact opposite. And listen carefully to what he says here. He says, true freedom is freedom from myself and from the cramping tyranny of my own self-centeredness in order to live in love for God and for others. Only in such self-giving love is an authentically free in human existence to be found. Let me, let me read that last part again really carefully. True freedom is freedom from myself and from the cramping tyranny of my own self-centeredness in order to live in love for God and others. Only such self-giving love is authentically free in human existence to be found. In other words, the selfish will never be free. So, so if this is true, that the selfish will never be free, and, and let's just assume here for a moment that it is, then how do we find true freedom? How do we live truly free lives? And this morning as we look at this passage that Adam just read for us from Galatians chapter 5, we're going to see, uh, we're going to see four things. We're going to see the goal of freedom, the enemy of freedom, the source of freedom, and the walk of freedom. So we're going to see the goal, the enemy, the source, and then the walk. And the first thing that we see is the goal of freedom. If you have a Bible with you or grab one of the ones in the pew, um, look at Galatians chapter 5, verse uh, 13. It's on page 975, as, as uh, Adam mentioned. Look at what Paul writes in, in verse 13. He says, For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, 
but through love serve one another. And here Paul introduces the goal of freedom, uh, namely to serve one another in love. Now, now before we go any further here, we need to pause and ask, why does Paul introduce this theme of freedom here in his letter? What's going on in the letter to the Galatians? Why is he even writing this letter uh, in the first place? Well, Galatians is actually one of Paul's earliest letters, probably first or second Thessalonians. One of those is probably the very earliest that Paul wrote. But Galatians is a very early letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches in, in a region called Galatia. So Galatia isn't a city, it's a region. And there was a number of churches kind of in that region, and Paul's writing a letter to them. And uh, because a crisis had struck these churches, a group of teachers had come in after Paul. Paul gone in, started these churches, kind of set them on a foundation. Um, they didn't have the New Testament yet, so they're just kind of going on what Paul uh, had, had taught them about the gospel. But this other group of people had come in after the fact, and they began to convince these Christians and Galatians that, that what they needed to do was to actually come under the Jewish law. In order to really be a Christian, you also had to obey the Jewish law. However, to do this is to deny the very gospel of grace that Paul preached in the gospel that we've been exploring these last couple weeks in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 2 last week. Jeanette opened that text for us, and, and in Romans chapter 3 before that. And Paul argues in this letter that if it were possible to be right with God by, by keeping the law, then Jesus' death was, was unnecessary. And Paul says, look, you were enslaved under the law. But Jesus has set you free from the law. And if you try to go back and live under the law again, you will just go back to slavery. And so Paul's conclusion, he's making this argument in chapter 1, 2, 3, and all the way up to the end of 4. And then in, in chapter 5, verse 1, he gives us this conclusion. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So great, we've been set free, we're, we're no longer slaves to this law, but Paul anticipates uh, the question that's coming in our mind. So if we're free, uh, if Christ has set us free, and if we're free in Christ, then, then is that just kind of this autonomous freedom, like we can just kind of do whatever we want? And that's actually what Paul addresses here in, in verse 13. He says, for freedom you were called to, brothers and sisters, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. You're, the goal of freedom is to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So Paul says, look, you have been called to freedom. You have been set free in Christ. But there's two things that you can do with your freedom. You can either use your freedom to serve yourself and to destroy others bite and devour, or you can use your freedom to serve others and destroy your selfishness. There's two, there's two things you can do with that freedom, but you can't do both. You can only do one or the other. And actually, remember this, Paul says that don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. I remember when I read that text this week, the first thing that came to my mind actually was a moment when um, I kind of first experienced some freedom as a little kid. And, uh, and, and kind of used as an opportunity not for the best of things. It was one of the first times my parents had left us at home as kids. I mean, they were just running Atari or something. It was kind of this trial, like, okay, you know, we're going to be gone for a half hour. We're just going to leave you kids at home. We were old enough to do that. And the first thing that my, my sister and I did um, was we started making prank phone calls. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know why, but it was like this moment. Was, they're out of the house. Like, make, it was, we like, called this like pizza place. And we have to, I don't know. We had some friends who told us do this and uh you know it was the moment that we had this freedom we used it as an opportunity for something um 
it was not uh, was not good, and it actually resulted in a loss of freedom. Both because we immediately, I mean, as kids were, I mean, we're so guilty. I mean, my parents didn't even have to ask us what had happened. I mean, we, I mean, they did because we were we were so guilty. I mean, it was we couldn't hide it at all. We were terrible liars, and I think they could just tell that there was something that had gone wrong. Um, so there was just this incredible loss of freedom, not only in the sense that I think you know, we had some restrictions put on us after that, but also just in the sense that there was a loss of, of emotional uh, joy and, and hope in those moments. And, and I still kind of cringe thinking back on that uh, today. We resulted in a loss of freedom. And in verses 16 and 18, as we kind of continue down the passage, Paul introduces the enemy of freedom and also the source of freedom that preserves um, that for us. And, and he says, you have to have something that's going to preserve this freedom for you because the, the selfish will never be free. And our tendency is always to use the, our freedom for ourselves. So look at what he says in verse 18. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you ever feel like that in your Christian life? That I just can't seem to do the things that I want to do. Either I'm, I'm disobeyed and, and I don't want to do that because I have to work with the Spirit in my life, or I'm, I'm, I'm following the Spirit because there's these things over here that I want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see, there is a war for freedom taking place in the life of every Christian. There's a battle for freedom taking place in the life of every Christian. And the flesh is the enemy of freedom, and the spirit is the source of freedom. Now, these two forces are unrelentingly and permanently opposed to one another. This is what Paul's saying. There's, there's no diplomatic compromise that can be made here. There's no peace treaty that can be forged. These two things, the flesh and the spirit, are forever against one another. And, and the only way to not have our freedom stolen by the desires of the flesh, Paul says, is to walk by the spirit. Or put it another way, the way to freedom in Christ is only possible by the Spirit. The, the only way to be free in Christ is to walk by the Spirit. And, and we'll talk more on that in a moment. But first we need to take a closer look at the enemy of freedom. The enemy of freedom is the desires of the flesh. And in verses 19 through 21, Paul points out what he calls the works of the flesh. He says these things are, are obvious. And then he gives us a big kind of catalog. He lists a bunch of them for us. He gives us some examples but before we go on to look at that list, and I want to do that in just a minute, but before we do that, we need to ask the question and try to understand what is the flesh? When Paul says the, the works of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, um, or if you have an older edition of the NIV, it might say the, the sinful nature you might see there instead of flesh. Um, but Paul, first of all, what he doesn't mean, Paul doesn't mean um, just our bodies. He, Paul is, is very pro-body, so is Jesus. Jesus is the very son of God, took on a body. Um, the, the scriptures are very pro-body. The escaping um, sin is not a matter of getting rid of the body. Um, so that's what he doesn't mean. But what is, when he says flesh, what does he mean? Well, imagine it like this. Um, imagine that you are diagnosed um, with a, a, a terminal heart condition. That your entire body is, of course, affected as a result. If your heart starts failing, the rest of your health is going to fail as well. Your, your entire body starts dying also. But then a donor, a heart is made available. Someone with a healthy heart uh, has died, and, and they uh, have put their organ up for, uh, for donation. And you get the call that there's this new heart that's available. 
and you're rushed into surgery, and this dead, diseased heart is removed from your body, and this new, healthy heart is placed in you, and eventually this new, healthy heart is going to restore health to your whole body. It's going to bring you back to life. However, at first, if you know anything about transplant surgery, right, one of the biggest things is that your body initially tries to reject this. The rejection of that new organ is such a problem. The flesh is like that. It's that thing that's trying to reject the new life that's in you. The force that rejects the transplant, that's the, the idea of the flesh that, that Paul's talking about. Everyone who has trusted in Christ has been given a new heart. Jeanette talked about last week. We are new creations in Christ. But our flesh, our old self, Paul sometimes calls it, rejects that new life and tries to kill it. In short, the flesh is that unrelenting selfishness that constantly screams, me, 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 I, I, I. It's that force that's within us. And the selfish will never be free. So what does that selfishness look like? Well, Paul calls it the works of the flesh, and, and he gives us a pretty extensive catalog in verse 19, right? Beginning there in 19, he says, the works of the flesh are heaven. Uh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and also like, in case I haven't, you know, said enough, and, and other things like these, um, just in case I didn't fully cover it there. The things that Paul lists here can be broken into kind of four broad categories, but they all have one thing in common, and that is that they are all focused on self. And as a result, they wreak havoc on relationships. It, you can trace that thread through every one of those things that Paul is. They're all focused on self. And, and as a result, they wreak havoc on relationships. For example, take the first category that Paul has there of, of sexual sins, of sexual morality, and impurity, sensuality. Um, sex is a good thing. It's designed to be a self-giving act. The covenant of marriage between a man and a woman where the focus is on whole life commitment to another person until death. But sexual immorality, it's a Greek word, porneia, it's the broadest term for, um, covers pornography, sex outside of marriage, adultery. In the end, that sexual immorality is always focused on me and me satisfying my needs, my desires. So it takes this good thing that's supposed to be others focused and it turns it in on itself. And, and the same is true here with this category of religious sins that Paul mentions, this idolatry and sorcery. You see, in the first century context, idolatry and sorcery had to do everything to do with um, manipulating the gods, to get them to do with what, what you wanted them to do, right? So you would feed the god, you'd make a little food offering to the god, or you'd perform some kind of a ceremony. And all this was to get the gods on your side as you went into battle, or as you had this big meeting, or whatever. You were doing these things to get the gods or, the, or god onto your side. Now, today, we um, probably aren't feeding food to statues or performing magical ceremonies, but we still try to do this, right? We still try to manipulate God to get him to do what we want, don't we? I mean, maybe it's uh, implicit or explicit, but don't we sometimes say to God, either implicitly or explicitly, that, God, because I'm doing what you've told me to do, then you need to bless me and give me a good and comfortable life? I mean, sometimes you hear it reverse when things start getting rough, he said, well, God, I've obeyed you. I've, I've done what you wanted me to do, and, and now I'm suffering. Were you really obeying to get God, or were you obeying just to get the stuff that God can give? You said, we still try. Uh, it's a little more subtle. It's not quite sorcery and not idolatry in that sense, but we still try to manipulate. 
Uh, next, Paul lists a whole uh, host of social sins, which, again, they all have the root in this selfishness, this self-centeredness, enmity and strife are the result of, of me demanding my way and refusing to let go of my rights. Jealousy and envy are this intense negative feeling over someone else's success and achievement. Uh, you, one of the quickest ways to know you're being kind of controlled by the flesh is if you can't be happy when other people succeed. Especially if they're achieving things you're also working toward. Um, we tend not to be envious or jealous of people in, in different fields or different stages of life, right? I mean, so just take me for example. As a pastor, uh, I'm not usually struggling with envy for someone whose law practice is going really great. I mean, that's great, awesome. So that, that the pastor down the street whose church is growing a little faster or has the cooler program or, you know, probably no one has a cooler building than us, but... Uh, <laughs> It's, this is, you know, that's where you, it's the people in your field, in your life stage, the people who are clo- actually closest to you, who are working for the same things that you tend to be most jealous, most envious toward. Again, Paul continues, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Again, all of these happen when I'm demanding my rights, or when my toes get stepped on, when my opinions have been challenged or questioned. Again, I see that attitude myself when sometimes the, how many of you have been in this situation where you're, you're in a meeting and you're making a point that's, you know, it turns out it's not that great of a point. But because it was your point and, and now someone's going to disagree with it, now you're fighting for it. You see that it's not even that great of a point, but you're just clinging to it. I hate that I see my, myself all the time. When I was presenting my outline to our staff on Monday for, for this very message, I felt this kind of welling up within me. And I'm like, well, this is a text about this and I'm experiencing it. Right here, I'm fighting for my point. I don't even know if it's a good point anymore. Um, finally, Paul lists uh, what some call drinking sins, uh, drunkenness, orgies. And, and I think really this category could cover all sorts of sins that undermine self-control and fuel kind of an impulsiveness and an escapism. All of these things, the works of the flesh, uh, whether sexual, religious, social, escapist, they erode and destroy freedom. And the selfish will never be free. These things make us slaves to ourselves, our desires, our impulses, and, and they make it ever more difficult for us to think about, much less actually serve or care for others. I mean, the deeper you go into this, the more and more you're turned in on yourself. It becomes even increasingly difficult just even to think about other people, much less to be able to love them and sacrificially care for them. But you see, not only do these things result in a loss of freedom for, for us when we're practicing them, they actually erode the freedom of others around us. They actually begin to erode the freedom of the other people in the relationship with us, and they impinge on the freedom and the flourishing of others. I mean, anyone who has battled addiction of, of any kind or has loved someone who battles addiction, uh, it just, you see this, right? And it doesn't just wreck your own life and just destroy your own freedom, but, but actually destroys the freedom, especially of those closest to you. So our pursuing the works of the flesh not only result in loss of freedom for us, but for those around us as well. Secondly, though, they also not only erode our freedom, but they also exclude us from God's kingdom. Did you notice what Paul says at the end of verse 21? He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom, this place where God gets done what he wants done, is characterized by utter selflessness. 
Because the king is an innocent man who died on the cross for guilty men and women. I mean, the characteristic of the kingdom is fundamentally selflessness, others-focused. And therefore, those who are dominated by self, they don't fit in the kingdom. They don't like the kingdom. And the king will not allow his kingdom to be spoiled and eternally selfish. So how then do we defeat this enemy of freedom? How do we escape our terminal selfishness? Well, answering these questions brings us back to consider the source of freedom. And Paul says up in verse 16, he says, If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of flesh. And that language of walk is really key. Because in the Old Testament especially, this language of walking is used to describe the whole of your life. How you live your life. Become a guiding principle of your life. And um, as we've been reading through the Old Testament, reading through the Bible this year in, in Open Here, which is kind of our, our habit of, of reading the Bible daily, this, this program that we're doing to help us establish that habit. Back all the way back on January 13th, we read Genesis 17, um, where God comes to Abraham. Abraham is the, is the founding kind of father of the Jewish nation. He says to Abraham, walk before me and be whole. Walk before me and be blameless. And then later in, uh, in May, on May 18th, we read Psalm 1. Uh, Psalm 1 starts off by describing the life of those who are blessed, those who experience life as God designed it. And it says that they are the ones who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Then later in July, July 25th, we read Ezekiel 36, where God promised that one day he would actually put his spirit in his people. And it would really enable them to walk before him as he had designed you see, the Spirit is the one who preserves the freedom that Christ has set us free for. Paul writes in another one of his letters, this one to the church at Corinth, uh, 2 Corinthians, the book we were in last week. He says, Now the Spirit, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You see, the Spirit empowers us to love others, to give Thus, the life of true freedom by keeping us from gratifying the desires of the flesh. We saw that the works of the flesh are all focused on me and they undermine relationship. But the spirit is focused on others and builds up relationship. So the flesh is always focused on me and it, it always ends up undermining, destroying relationships. So the spirit is always others focused and it builds up relationships. So notice what Paul says in verses 22 through 24. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, self-control. Against these there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now it's important to note that while the works of the flesh are plural, the fruit of the Spirit is singular. So there's the works of the flesh, but there's just the one fruit of the Spirit. And I don't know if you heard this this week, but uh, the, uh, was it the, the pink star diamond was sold uh, this week for $83 million. It's this incredible diamond. Um, and the fruit, if you think about the fruit of the Spirit as like a diamond, like that. Because the fruit, it's one singular thing, but it has all these different facets. And each one, as the light hits it, illumines the other facets. They all come together. You can't have one without the other. And you see this because when you think about the works of the flesh, you don't have to be drunk to be jealous, right? I mean, you can be jealous without being drunk. That's true. But when you think about the fruit of the Spirit, you can't be loving 
without also exhibiting kindness and patience and joy. They all come together. The works of the flesh can be fragmented out, but the, the fruit of the Spirit always comes together. So what are these different facets of this fruit of the Spirit? Well, Tim Keller in his Galatians today, guy, he's really helpful here. Um, just, we're going to look at a number of these. We're just going to walk through these one by one. And uh, I'm just going to look at them uh, briefly. So the first fast that Paul highlights is love. And love is the very antithesis of, of selfishness, right? It means to serve another person for their good and their intrinsic value, not for what that person brings you. And, and the opposite of love is, is the sort of fear, the self-protection of abusing people. But here's the thing, though. Love can often be counterfeited. And the, the counterfeit of love, the fake version of it, is a selfish affection where you're attracted to someone and treat them well because of how they make you feel, right? Um, I mean, I think a lot of what we experience, especially in dating, what we experience of, of, of love is actually, man, I really love how this other person makes me feel. I love that they love me. Um, that's what we feel. So love can be counterfeited in that way. What about joy? Joy is a buoyancy. It's a deep gladness that you can't be sunk. Yeah. And joy doesn't mean that you're not ever sad. But just that you, you have this resiliency that just can't be kept down. You see, the opposite of sadness, or of joy, isn't sadness, but hopelessness. Huh. The opposite of joy isn't sadness, but hopelessness. Because the Bible, there's lots of places in the Bible where you see people who are, who are deeply sad, but they have great, they have great joy, great confidence, great buoyancy. Uh, it's counterfeit, is elation. It's, it's based on experiencing the blessings and not the blesser. You know, happiness is really based on, I'm really excited about all this good stuff God has given me. The joy is, I'm really excited about the God who exists and loves me so much. Hmm. And Paul says, peace. Peace is a confidence and a rest in the wisdom and control of God rather than in your own wisdom. It replaces anxiety and worry. Um, the fake version of peace, kind of the counterfeit of peace, can be an indifference or an apathy. It's actually, we get peace by just kind of disconnecting, by not caring says patience. And patience in this particular context uh, has the idea of, of being able to bear up under provocation. It's less about waiting for like something you were talking about. Oh, you got to be patient because Christmas isn't here yet. But there's also patience in the sense of, I have someone who just makes my life miserable and I need to really be patient with them. That's what's on you in, in this particular verse. It's a relational patience. Patience. Um, the opposite of patience is, is lashing out in anger, losing your temper, blowing up. Um, but the counterfeit of patience, uh, or at least one of those counterfeits, is actually sort of shutting down and withdrawing. Um, just disengaging isn't actually patience. Um, so patience stays engaged even when it is continued to be provoked. Next, Paul says kindness. Um, I think kindness comes across kind of weak in English. You know, kindness kind of means niceness or politeness to us. But, but this idea of the Greek word here is it's an ability to serve others practically in a way which, which actually makes me vulnerable. Yeah. And its opposite is envy, which leaves me unable to rejoice in another's joy. Um, it, it's fake alternative. It's counterfeitism. The ability of good deeds, doing good for others so that I can congratulate myself or feel good enough. For God and others, but kindness is the self-sacrificial service of others. Um, goodness, Paul says, and the, actually the best Greek lexicons say here that that really probably this word in this context should be translated generosity. It's a goodness that's poured out on other people. 
And the opposite is this greed and jealousy, and it's counterfeit of goodness. It's kind of a manipulation because we can be generous even in our, we can be uh, manipulative even in our in our giving, right, of our time or energy. And sort of, I, I do this favor for you. Um, I'm really just trying to gain uh, influence with you or, or gain a favor back from you at some point down the road. Next, pulse is faithfulness. And again, here, the, the best lexicon say, in this context, probably a better translation of this is, is loyalty. Um, that is being someone in whom confidence can be placed, faithfulness, reliability, fidelity, commitment. Uh, faithfulness is to be utterly reliable and true to your word. Uh, the opposite of faithfulness is going to be an opportunist, a friend only in good times, and it's counterfeit is to be loving but not truthful, so that you're never willing to confront or challenge. And then Paul says gentleness. And gentleness here actually has a lot of overlap with humility. Um, that's where the blend comes in. It's, it's not so much gentleness as in kind of uh, not being rough, but gentleness in terms of having a, a right view of yourself, of humility. It's the quality of not being overly impressed uh, by a sense of one's own self-importance. And the opposite of this is to be superior or self-absorbed. It's, it's counterfeit. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. It's this kind of self-loathing, this always saying I'm no good, which actually just ends up being focused on you all the time. And then lastly, Paul says self-control. And this language, again, has the idea of restraint of one's emotions, impulses, desires, and really for the sake of others. Um, It's the ability to pursue the important over the urgent, rather than always being impulsive or uncontrolled. And actually, I love what uh, Tim Keller, he points out the counterfeit of, of self-control is surprising. It's what we wouldn't expect. This is the slightly surprising counterfeit of self-control is willpower, which is based on pride and the need to feel in control. Simple kind of gritting your teeth willpower isn't the same as, as a spirit empowered self-control. So finally, after Paul has detailed all these facets of the fruit of the spirit, he wraps up the section with this summary statement. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul makes two really important points in this verse. The first one is this. He says, first, we have been given life and freedom in the Spirit, and that Spirit is received by faith. Paul says in, in chapter 3, verse 2, let me ask you this, Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And the answer is, you receive the Spirit by faith. You didn't get the Spirit by doing all these works of the law. So the life that we have in the Spirit is a gift. It's received through faith. We, we didn't get it by exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. We don't become free. And this is the key thing. You don't get free by trying really hard to produce the works or the fruit of the Spirit. No, you produce the fruit of the Spirit because you are free. Because you've been set free in Christ. It's really important to have those in the right order. The way to get free isn't to try to just kind of grit your teeth and and work up the fruit of the Spirit. No, the way that we become free is through Christ. So we have this freedom in Christ that comes by faith. Second, this life of the Spirit isn't one of passivity. It isn't sort of, I'm just going to let go and let God, I'm going to sit on the couch and eat some potato chips and, and hope that I start exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. No, Paul says, if you live by the Spirit, then, then keep in step with the Spirit. That we have a part to play in this life of faith that God has called us to. 
in our Christian lives, we can either be in or out of step with the Spirit. And that's I love the song that Mindy wrote and sung for us this morning that captures that so well. So, so how do we keep in step with the Spirit? And the, one of the frustrating things about this text is Paul actually doesn't give us a list of how-tos uh, in this passage about, well, this is how you keep in step with the Spirit. But still want to think through, what are some ways as we look at this text um, that we see that how we begin to do this? Well, first, um, we keep in the step of the Spirit by knowing that we are in a battle. First, by knowing that we are in a battle. The Christian life is a struggle. I had a professor in college who described living the Christian life is like trying to go up the down escalator um, at Christmas on, on Black Friday. Everything is pushing against you. The Christian life is a struggle. This is exactly what Paul says in verse 17, right? Earlier, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. As a Christian, it is normal to feel like you can't do what you want to do. You have a desire to be holy, and you, that you keep sinning, that you have, you're being holy, and yet you're still constantly tempted. The Christian life is a life of struggle. We have to remember this. Otherwise, we'll just completely be discouraged. Why am I still struggling like this? This is, this, Paul says this is a normal part of the Christian life. Or you'll just give up and just get, get run over. You see, a struggle with sin is actually evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life. It's when you stop struggling with it, when you stop feeling like this is not what I want to do, when you just sin without any kind of, of regret or remorse, that's actually where you begin to worry. And you have to say, have I actually begun to live in the Spirit then at that point? See, so the battle is evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life. So we walk by the Spirit. First thing you have to do is remember that we're in this battle. Second, we keep in step with the Spirit by never fighting alone. Jesus in John chapter 15 tells us to abide in Him, and then we will bear much fruit. And we abide in Christ by stepping into the yoke of Christ, by learning from Him, by practicing the disciplines, by prayer, study, solitude, corporate worship, service. And this passage in Galatians, I love this, it's so clear that there's a concurrence. There's two parties at work when we walk by the Spirit. There's the Spirit, and then there's also us. And just notice this pattern in the text. Uh, earlier in the book, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says that we have been crucified with Christ, that God has crucified us along with Christ. And then in 524, he says that we crucify the flesh. So God's at work, we're at work. We walk by the Spirit, but the Spirit also leads us. The Spirit gives us life, but we keep in step with the Spirit. There's this concurrence of these, these two parties working together. And as I say that, I just want to clarify, when God declares us righteous, that's a unilateral thing that He's doing, but as we grow in holiness, there's two people at work. As we grow in what it means to follow Christ, there's two parties at work, us and the Spirit. And we can't keep in step with the Spirit apart from the Spirit, but the Spirit doesn't force us to keep in step with Him. We must learn to follow His lead. And this is where the community, where all of you, actually comes in to be so important. Because we learn to keep in step with the Spirit, oftentimes, as we walk with those who have done this longer than we have. Who are more mature in Christ than we are. I mean, that's when we get to see, what does this really look like to walk by the Spirit when you're, when you're a mom of a two-year-old? How do you really walk by the Spirit when you're leading a company? Well, that's why we have this community of faith of those who are older than us, who are more mature in Christ, who can help us understand what that looks like. Finally, we keep in step with the Spirit by remembering the one who is more than bow. Remember, it is Christ who has set you free. 
And true freedom is only found when we embrace the one who is utterly selfless, who loved us to the point of death, even death on the cross, who exhibited joy and peace even in the face of anguish and torture, who was patient and kind even to those who pounded the nails into his wrists, who generously poured out his life for those who took his who is faithful and loyal even to those who betrayed him, who is humble and gentle and yet commands all the power and authority in the universe, who is self-controlled, refusing to save himself that he might rescue us and free us from our terminal selflessness by the power of the Spirit. It is that Jesus who we celebrate in communion. And as we participate in communion each week here at the Brookside Campus, one of the things that we do, one of the things that we say as we come to the communion table is that we say to everyone around us and ourselves that we are hopelessly selfish. I recognize that I have this terminal selfishness and that I can never be free, but I desire to have this character of Christ formed within me. And that because of what this meal symbolizes, Christ's death and resurrection and forgiveness of sins, I have been set free. I've been given the gift of the Spirit, I can live this life.